Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at healing with Alexander Venter, who is a pastor, church planner, and author, and does uh, mission work, ministry around the world. And he is the author of the book, Doing Healing, How to Minister God's Kingdom in the Power of the Spirit. So the book is available below. Just follow the link. So, um, Alexander, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. I'm honored that you invited me. Really appreciate it. And great to be together with all the listeners. All right. And Alexander is all the way from South Africa and is in South Africa right now. So, uh, first of all, give us a little background about yourself, um, your theological orientation or your, your church orientation, and uh, particularly about how you were involved at the, on the early days of the Vineyard Movement. Okay, thanks, Dennis. So, so okay, um, I'm married to Jill, uh, Jillian Fenter. That's my main claim to fame. And we, <laughs> we have two a- adult children. Our son is married to... Samantha, and we have a granddaughter, Abby, and our, our daughter's a practicing clinical psychologist. And I'm a vineyard pastor, been part of the vineyard since 1982. Prior to that, I was an Assemblies of God pastor for five years, um, and I came to faith in a Baptist context at the age of 13 years old at high school. I was had a glorious kind of, you know, born-again experience. So I've been in the Baptist's Assemblies of God and ministered for five years as a young church planter and pastor. Then met a guy, Lonnie Frisbee, who 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 um, kind of introduced me to John Wimber. And I had the wonderful privilege. I, I worked with John Wimber in 1982 in Southern California in your Belinda Vineyard um, <clears throat> for, for, for eight months and interned with him. And then... We came back in October of 82 and planted the Vineyard Church with two other colleagues of mine in Johannesburg. So basically, since 82, I've been helping to plant and pastor Vineyard Churches and train church planters, especially up into Africa in various nations. So that's a bit about me. <laughs> All right. And you have your own personal story of healing also. Could you give us some information about that? Yes, so look, I, I, in Doing Healing Chapter 1, I write all my doing. I've got four books in the Doing series, and every first chapter is autobiographical because I believe that theology in some very real sense is incarnational, autobiographical. So I've had to, over the years, come to terms with my own brokenness, and I kind of became aware that the deepest root of my own brokenness was rejection that went back to the womb um, and that I've been working for years growing in working with my own brokenness but as a pastor, preacher, also exercising Christian healing ministry in the name of Jesus, hopefully by God, the power of God's Spirit to bring healing to people, both physical and emotional and also spiritual freedom from spiritual powers. So it's been a lifelong journey, and uh, I still work with my own stuff. My triggers are still there sometimes, but um, I am deeply aware that we all are wounded healers, and to the degree we are in touch with our own issues and stuff, to that extent we trust God for help, and we also have compassion on others. 
in their brokenness, as opposed to just treating people as objects of ministry and uh, using people, you know, to kind of prove a point or to become famous, etc. So uh, that's a bit about my healing journey. <laughs> All right. And so in your book, you uh, delineate six different kind of worldviews or different eras or different approaches <clears throat> to healing uh, throughout the Christian era. Could you go over those six briefly, please? Okay. Thanks, Dennis. Um, yes, I think this is really important because if we understand the Christian church and Christian healing ministry and the kind of big picture layout, then we will hopefully be able to understand where we ourselves find ourselves within these various understandings of of healing. But briefly, um, large sections of the church still believe that healing is consigned to medical science, that, that God gave to us through creation a human brain and uh, medical science and discoveries and that that even psychology, psychiatry, emo- psycho-emotional issues, the church has generally handed over to the medical profession, physical issues, psycho-emotional issues, etc., because it's kind of underlying it is a dualism that the church is for salvation and spiritual ministry, and if a person is sick in their soul, then they need pastors and Christian ministry, but if a person is sick in their body, then they need doctors. Um, And so you go to the medical profession for sickness and for soul or spiritual issues, you go to the church. So that's one view, um, the dualism between medical science and spirituality. I think a biblical worldview is that it's, it's both and, it's not either or, we work with both. The second view I talk about as God's sovereign will to to heal, and that's present both within some liberal church circles as well as some conservative circles. And uh, you know, John Calvin actually was the one who who um, popularized this, and also what is called cessationism—that the healing miracles of Jesus stopped with the early church, the apostolic era, and then through the the Middle Ages, as it were. There was a very low ebb, but healing still occurred. And therefore, if healings occur, it's just the sovereign will of God. Because now we have the Bible since about whatever, 300 AD, um, when the New Testament was recognized, uh, the books of the New Testament um, uh, in the ecumenical councils, uh, Calvin argued that now we have the Bible as witness to the kingdom of God and people's faith is based on the Bible not on healing signs and wonders and miracles therefore but if God still does them well then it's just the sovereign will of God and uh, when we pray therefore we just say God if it is your sovereign will then please heal this person but if not then just kind of help them or we'll send them off to a doctor (laughs) and hope for the best so this Sovereign will of God idea <clears throat> is also linked into cessationism, that the healing signs and wonders of Jesus in the early church ceased, and with the coming of the New Testament era, and that healing signs and wonders today are um, in the Christian ch- church are either spurious, or they're just the sovereign will of God out of his mercy. Um, 
Another uh, view that I also talk about, which is very popular in, evangel- in certain evangelical and Pentecostal charismatic circles, is healing in the atonement uh, through exercising faith. And the basic teaching is from Isaiah chapter 53, as fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross, that by his stripes we are healed. And the theology very simply says that just as we, as Jesus died for our sins on the cross and we receive the forgiveness of sins by faith in the blood of Jesus, likewise, Jesus also died for our sicknesses on the cross. And we therefore we receive healing by faith in the blood of Jesus in the same way we receive forgiveness. And it's like an instant exercise of faith where we claim healing And of course, if we don't feel better or there's no physical change or physical manifestation of healing, then we still say we're healed in the finished work of the cross. And we're just waiting for the manifestation of that healing to happen in our bodies. But we stand on the promise of God. And uh, the, the kind of phraseology that is often used in the word of faith movement, you, you name it and you claim it and you stand on it, and you confess it. And if you doubt, then that is your problem as to why you are not healed because of your lack of faith. So this healing and the atonement and exercise of faith has got biblical basis, but the way it has been popularized and taught can be very cruel for, for people in, um, on the receiving end because often if they're not healed, they are blamed, but it's it's your lack of faith or there's some unresolved sin in your life or or if you just knew right and just believed right, you would be healed. Uh, and, and that's the painful part. But um, healing in the kingdom of God, in the theology of the kingdom is different in that the theology of the kingdom as per Jesus and the Gospels is like the big picture of the coming of the kingdom of God under which, into which the atonement fits as a part and so there is healing in the atonement because Jesus has come. But there's also healing in his life and ministry. There's healing in his death and resurrection. There's healing in his ascension and in Pentecost. So if you make the one part of the kingdom story the whole and make the other subservient to it, then you end up in serious problems. And that's what's happened with healing in the atonement. The one part becomes the whole. And it's the lens through which you read everything else. And the last one, Dennis, that I uh, talk about in the book is what is called restorationism, which is the, the theological paradigm that undergirds Pentecostalism and charismatic uh, theology and, and practice. And it basically says that, uh, you know, we lost um, healing signs and wonders, miracles with Jesus in the early church and went through a long period of dryness. Then through Martin Luther, God's restored soul justification by faith to the church. Through the evangelical revivals, God has restored the born-again message and revivalism and the great awakenings to the church. Through the Pentecostal movement, God's restored the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Through the charismatic movement, God's restored the fivefold ministry. And it's a kind of wind-up eschatology to the end that In the restoration of God giving back to the church what was lost, power, signs, and wonders are now part of this this end-time church that's going to bring in a great revival and therefore 
the second coming of Jesus. And that um, understanding or interpretation of history, church history, and the end times is very naive, is very narrow, and is not at all a sound basis for a biblical practice of Christian healing ministry. And so the last one then I discuss, which of course is what the book is all about, is the paradigm of the theology of the kingdom, what I call Jesus's worldview and theological paradigm and his praxis. Um, that is the real biblical basis for Christian healing ministry today. Wait, isn't there one you missed where sickness is God's chastisement and healing as reward for <clears throat> repentance? Thank you. You are right. You're keeping me on the straight and narrow, Dennis. <laughs> but you are correct. And that, again, it's, it's part of a mix of Reformed Calvinism and some Catholic elements, maybe even within some Orthodox circles, is that <clears throat> if we pray for healing and we are, are, are not healed, then maybe it's not God's will. But on the other hand, also, Sickness and ongoing pain and struggle can be a means of God's discipline and chastisement to teach us to be holy. And it's a, it can become a warped theology of suffering, where, whereby suffering is, is kind of sanctified and spiritualized into this instrument of God to make us, to discipline us and chastise us so that we come to our senses and turn to God in repentance and then healing, of course, if it happens, becomes a reward for my repentance. Because now I've become a good person and I'm worthy to be healed now because I've repented from my sin. So that is also another stream. And I omitted to mention that earlier. So, I mean, there were saints. I think it was Julian of Norwich that actually <clears throat> prayed to have a terminal illness that she might suffer and be more like Christ. And eventually she received that illness and died. Yeah. So it has a very practical application. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I mean, I'm aware of that story. And again, I think it is one, um, for me, sad example of um, <clears throat> a, um, a misunderstanding of healing in terms of its real biblical basis. And one does not have to pray for terminal illness in order to become more like Jesus. The whole tenor of the New Testament is we learn to obey God and practice spiritual disciplines to grow into Christ-likeness. We don't need to suffer unnecessarily so um, in order to achieve that. So that is a sad story. You're absolutely correct. There's enough suffering. If we seek to follow God and do his will and serve <laughs> others and serve the needy, there will be suffering, to be sure. All right, so those are six models that you take issue with um, yep. at some level. Some of them have some things that are beneficial. But So what is it then about your theology, your theology of healing that obviously has to do with the kingdom of God and what Jesus did and said? How would you describe that? Um, yes, so <clears throat> for me, essentially, if I had to summarize it, um, Jesus's mission, his message, and his ministry was essentially about the kingdom of God. All scholars today uh, probably, without exception, are agreed that Jesus' central content and theme is the kingdom of God. The question is, what did he mean by that? And uh, it, it essentially is the action of God's rule and reign 
defeating the rule and reign of darkness or evil in its various forms. And the background story, I think, is really important for Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, a young 30-year-old Jewish rabbi, had a worldview and a frame of reference underlying his belief in the kingdom and praxis of the kingdom that came from the Old Testament. And essentially, in, in summary, I would say that God created all things good. God created human beings as the pinnacle of creation in his image and entrusted to Adam and Eve, human beings, the authority to rule over God's creation and to take the garden of shalom, God's order, well-being, prosperity to the ends of the earth. But Adam and Eve, human beings in Adam and Eve, sinned against God, gave away their God-given authority to rule and reign to the evil one, and we became slaves subject to sin, sickness, demons, death here on earth. And the devil rules. He's the God of this age that Paul talks about. Jesus says he's the prince of the power of the air. And so in the coming in the Old Testament, there is this growing hope that one day God will come in his Mashiach, his king, and will bring the kingdom and restore and change everything. And as an example, in the book of Isaiah, he prophesies, Isaiah 35, he said, say to those who have whose hands hang down, whose knees are weak, your God will come, and then the sick will be healed, the lame will leap for joy, the deaf will hear, the dumb will speak, um, and it speaks of all the healing signs and wonders that reverses the curse of sin and death on the earth. So in the coming of Jesus, when he declares the kingdom, announces the kingdom, he demonstrates the kingdom, not only announces it by healing sick people, driving out demons, and doing the works of the kingdom, defeating the rule and reign of darkness in people's lives and liberating people into the rule and reign of God. As Paul says in Colossians 1, we are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, his dear son. And so for me, the theology of the kingdom is essentially um, the overarching meta-narrative of Scripture that is fulfilled in Jesus and the Gospels as the real biblical basis for Christian healing ministry. Because at the end of the day, theologically, sickness is as a result of sin that came into the world. Because sin entered the world, and through sin, death, mortality, entered our bodies. And all forms of sickness is a foretaste of death, of, of bodily corruption. And in the kingdom, all forms of healing is a foretaste of resurrection. I, I would say a kingdom theology of healing is it's a power surge of our future resurrection bodies into the present body. <laughs> in a certain area or dimension of brokenness, we receive grace by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the exercise of God's kingship that defeats the sickness. And it's a foretaste or anticipation of resurrection. Because in the resurrection, we'll be completely free and completely whole of all sin, sickness, demons, and death itself. Amen. So in terms of looking more specifically at Christ, <clears throat> what are the principles and practices and patterns of his ministry that um, we should look at? Um, so this is a... This is a very uh, good and important question in my mind because 
in my book, and I'm just re referring to the actual pages here, if you don't mind, Dennis. So from hun page 117 to 123, I have 23 principles of, and, and practices of Jesus in his, in his kingdom healing ministry. And just going through all of those principles, we can learn a whole lot for ourselves in terms of Christian healing ministry. So what I did is I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and looked at all the healing stories of Jesus. And I just wrote down various principles that I drew out of Jesus's healing belief and praxis. And so if you had to talk about some of the important or significant principles, uh, I would probably say is that announcing the kingdom of God and then speaking the words of healing and laying on of hands was a common practice of Jesus. So often in the context of just teaching or speaking or announcing the rule and reign of God has come and God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within reach. It's right here. Then he would speak the word of healing to people. Pick up your bed and walk. Um, he communicated healing by the word of command and the power of the Holy Spirit obviously backed him up because things happened. But he often communicated power through laying on of hands or there was virtue that came out of him that flowed out of him in different stories. So it's a combination of what I call authority and power, the spoken word and the impartation. Um, of healing through laying on of hands. And, of, and the first followers of Jesus, as they remembered the historical Jesus and the way he conducted his kingdom ministry, they do talk about this fact of the doctrine of the laying on of hands, the practice of laying on of hands to impart the power of God to people for different purposes. And with it, obviously, then is also the spoken word. But uh, Jesus exercised profound discernment because of his intimacy with God, his Father by the Holy Spirit. And he didn't have a kind of a shotgun approach. I talk about where he just you know, sprays bullets everywhere, just praying for everyone. But he moved with precision by the power of the Holy Spirit as he saw what God was doing. And so the key text in John's Gospel is... Uh, in John chapter 5, um, when, when he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, and there's a lot of controversy around it because it's on the Sabbath, and Jesus says, my father's been working even to this day, and I'm working with him. And he says, and, and although I'm, I'm God's son, I, I don't do anything on my own initiative. Only what I see my father doing, that's what I do, and only what I hear my father saying, that's what I speak. So Jesus had a profound relational intimacy with God, whereby he moved in the finger of God. So in Luke, when, it, when Jesus says, if I, Matthew, if I by the Holy Spirit drive out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke says, if I by the finger of God drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the finger of God speaks of that absolute precision of the Holy Spirit, where God can touch us in, our, in their deepest psycho-emotional pain, where no psychologist can reach and no psychiatric medicine can reach. The Holy Spirit can do the impossible. What's, what's impossible for human beings, the Holy Spirit can do. And Jesus seemed to 
operate in such exquisite sensitivity and responsiveness to God by the indwelling Holy Spirit that he exercised the graces of the Spirit in any given situation with any given person at any given time. And he, the way I, I, I like to think of it, Jesus, when he was with someone, he thought what God would think if God were there. And he felt what God would feel. That's why the common phrase is, Jesus had compassion on them. And he then would say what God would say, and he would do what God would do in terms of releasing the healing of kingdom come. So, Dennis, I can go on, but in my mind, those are some of the key um, principles that we need to observe in Jesus, and we can learn from him, because he imparted his healing ministry to the twelve to the 72, and to the church and the Great Commission. And it's not time-bound. It's for all followers of Jesus throughout the ages is to take on the healing ministry of Jesus as kingdom people and exercise his authority, which is using his name, speaking his word, and trusting the power of the Holy Spirit to enact the authority of the spoken word as happened with Jesus. All right. So um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but um, you talked about the healing ministry being available to everybody. But there's that famous passage where Paul is saying, Do everybody, does everybody speak in tongues? Does everybody prophesy? Does everybody have the gift of healing? So what is your read there? Is it meant for some or all or just the gifted or what? Yeah, again, Important question, because I think people sometimes get confused with this. I think in the context that Paul is raising this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, he's talking about the gift ministries that God has given in the church for the full functioning of the body of, of Christ. And even, even in that context, do all, do all evangelize? And the answer is, Within the context of the body, there are complementary gifts, and some people are known more for gifts of evangelism, some are known more for gifts of healing, some are known more for prophetic gifts, some are known more for teaching or apostolic gifts. But that does not uh, um, mean that every believer as an individual cannot or must not exercise healing ministry in faith. So as an example of what I'm saying, or to illustrate it, every Christian is called to evangelize and to gossip the gospel and tell people about Jesus. <laughs> but only some among us are really capacitated as evangelists. And because we have evangelists who are, who are really gifted as evangelists, it doesn't let me off the hook to say, ah, oh, we have evangelists, I don't need to evangelize anyone. Everyone is called to pray, but some of us are gifted and capacitated as, in, as intercessors, and their intercessory ministry does not let me off the hook not to pray. So I think right. in this context, Paul is saying um, some are, are, are really gifted and recognized as functioning in the body regularly in healing ministry, whereas all of us should practice laying on of hands and healing ministry. And when um, in Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 6, when it talks of the elementary 
principles or doctrines of Christ for young believers, the milk that, that, that builds our foundation of faith. He talks about repentance and faith, baptism and laying on of hands, and then resurrection and judgment. The doctrine of the laying on of hands was taught to new believers as a common practice that if you're baptized in water, we lay hands on you to be filled, to receive empowered with the Spirit. And you go out and you lay hands. <laughs> in the vineyard, Dennis, we have a phrase in our church back home. We said, we must lay hands on anything that moves. And if it doesn't move, lay hands on it to get it to move. Because then it's dead. <laughs> and it's to come back to life. <laughs> so the principle of exercising the ministry of Jesus is for all believers and then what happens is we grow in our faith to work well with God in different areas. And so we grow into our real gifting and mature in it that it starts to be recognized as a ministry. And some lean more this way and have greater faith for this aspect and some more for that aspect. But we all, as John Wimber says, we, we all get to play and we should all do the stuff of the kingdom. All right, and you you mentioned uh, the power of the Spirit. So a very controversial doctrine is the baptism of the Spirit. Could you um, outline a few mm. of the different views on the baptism of the Spirit and then let us know what you think is theologically and biblically most sound? Yeah. Um, again, Dennis, thank you for that question. Um, Look, I was raised, or let me say I was born again as a teenager in a Baptist context. <clears throat> and there I understood and was taught that when you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit and you're filled with the Spirit at salvation, from salvation. And there is no need for any further kind of experience of the Spirit per se. But what happened is about a year and a half or two years into being a Christian, and I was taught to be a soul winner. The Baptists taught me the, the four spiritual laws, and you go around and you win souls for Jesus. But I subjectively had a distinct sense of lack of, I don't know what it is, conviction or power. And a friend of mine who at school got hold of me who was from the Assemblies of God, and he said, what you need is the power of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I said, okay, pray for me. And he prayed for me. And I started, I had a, a, a whole glorious baptism of the Holy Spirit experience. And I spoke in tongues. And then after that, I began to prophesy. And I felt somehow a qualitative change in me in terms of a subjective sense of conviction and freedom and boldness to go and to pray for the sick, to prophesy to cast out demons and to tell people about Jesus and lead people to Christ. But then I swung the other way. I became a Pentecostal pastor where I taught that the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second subsequent experience after salvation, which is evidenced by speaking in other tongues. And But then as I grew on and I met John Wimber, Lonnie Frisbee, then I met John Wimber and I restudied this theology of the Spirit from 19, in the 1980s from where Wimber stood. And also in my academic studies, I investigated this, and I've come to the point where it's neither the, the Baptist position per se, and it's neither 
the Pentecostal position per se, but there is a, a middle biblical theology, and perhaps the best explain, the best way I can explain it is that uh, John's gospel and Pauline theology emphasize receiving the Holy Spirit at salvation for the forgiveness of sins and regeneration of eternal life. Whereas Luke's, Luke Acts talks about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uh, idea of the, old, the Spirit of God coming on people to empower them to a particular task, a missional task God's given them, like Samson. The Spirit of God came upon Samson and he picked up the gates of the city and walked off. And the Spirit of God came on the prophets and the Spirit of God came on the kings and and the people, and they prophesied. And in the Old Testament, you get this pattern. Whenever the Spirit of God comes upon people, they break loose with prophetic gifts and phenomena, not just in terms of verbally, but also healing power and miracles like Elijah and, and Elisha. God took of the Spirit on Elijah and gave Elisha a double portion of that Spirit. And he did twice as many miracles as Elijah. So for me, I would say that if you uh, look Acts, he emphasizes more the work of the Holy Spirit as a second subsequent empowerment that continues as an ongoing empowerment for kingdom ministry. John's gospel and Paul's gospel pick up the narrow stream in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit that has to do with sanctification and the forgiveness of sins. So as an example of that is Psalm 51, when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and he was praying, he said, he was crying out for forgiveness of sins, create in me a clean heart, O God. He said, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Give me a willing, renew a willing spirit within me and I will turn away from my sin and I will be cleansed. Because your sacrifices are not blood and animals, but a broken and contrite heart. And that's picked up then later in Ezekiel. It speaks of the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant. That God will no longer, in the first covenant, there was the law outside of us that condemned us. But God will now put his law in our hearts and in our minds. And he will put his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit, in us. And that Holy Spirit will sanctify us and motivate us from within outwards to obey the commandments of God. So there is a stream in the Old Testament of the work of the Spirit that has to do with forgiveness, regeneration, sanctification. But the primary stream of the Old Testament theology of the Spirit is empowerment for ministry. Both of those streams are present in the New Testament. And the one some gospel writers emphasize more the one and others more the other. So just as a one, if, if you don't mind, can I give one further example, Dennis? I'm Go taking a bit of time on this. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as an example, um, John's gospel, he says that um, he teaches his disciples in John's gospel, especially the night before he's crucified. He says, I must go away. I must be crucified and I must go away that the Paracletos can come, the Holy Spirit can come. And he's been with you, but now he will live in you when I go away. And then on the evening of his resurrection, after he's risen from the dead that Sunday evening, he appears in, in John chapter 
2021 to his disciples and he breathes on them and says, receive my Holy, receive the Holy Spirit. And then as my father has sent me, I'm sending you. Technically, according to Jehannan theology, that's when the church was born again with the life of the resurrection. When Jesus breathed his spirit into them of eternal life. And Paul picks that up, the spirit of regeneration. Going back to John chapter 3, you must be born again by the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus. So John and Paul's theology emphasizes more this regeneration of the spirit. Whereas, of course, Luke's account of the coming of the Holy Spirit is not the resurrection, but it's Pentecost. And Luke's account is that Jesus rose again and for for 40 days taught his disciples and prepared them to receive the Holy Spirit, then ascended into heaven and 10 days later poured out the Spirit. And Pentecost, Acts 2, is the empowering of the Holy Spirit to explode the church to the ends of the earth through dreams, visions. You, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. You, your young people will prophesy. Even your maidservants. So there is the class gap that's crossed. There is the gender gap. There is the every barrier in society is crossed by the outpouring of the Spirit that reverses the Tower of Babel. God used different tongues at the Tower of Babel to scatter humanity. Pentecost is God using different tongues to gather humanity into the one new humanity, which is the people, the born-again people of God. So it's, it's an outpouring of power for world evangelization through signs and wonders and miracles. So both are true, and my summary would be is that we are born again by the Holy Spirit, like Jesus was born of the Spirit in the womb of Mary, but then later at his baptism, the Spirit came on him in power to begin his ministry. We are born again of the Spirit at salvation, when we receive salvation, but then we need the empowering of the Spirit for ministry as an initial and ongoing experience to live the Christian life for the glory of God. I hope that helps. Good, good. All right. And so faith is a huge part of this. What um, would you say like, is the nature of faith? How are we to understand faith in relation to healing? <clears throat> and then how do we increase our faith? Yeah, so faith... Um, Faith is a, is a interesting word because people have made it to mean, I think, different things that is not really simply the biblical, you know, biblical faith is simply total reliance on God, trusting God, confidence in God. It's putting your faith into God for certain purposes, for certain reasons, for certain things. And so uh, the biblical teaching is that faith comes to us by hearing as we hear the stories of Jesus, as we hear what God can do. The more we hear what God does and can do in people's lives, the more there is the sense of trust and hope rising up within us. Maybe God can do it for me. And then you ask God, which in itself is an act of faith. God, I give my life to you. Forgive my sins. That's a major act of faith. We are saved by faith born again by faith, we live by faith, and we do God's healing works by faith. It's all a journey of increasing, growing confidence in God that is, that is often then 
empowered or backed up by a gift of faith from the Holy Spirit, because one of the gifts of the Spirit is a gift of faith, that we can say to mountains, be removed, and we speak to a dead body and they resuscitate it back to life, or a paralyzed person gets out of a wheelchair. That's a grace of faith, a sovereign gift of faith. So faith has many developmental angles to it as we grow in the Christian life, And one dimension is exercising faith for healing ministry when we minister to people. And it's not a a foolproof method. It's not a kind of a a magic wand that if we just have the right faith and we just say the right words, then a miracle is going to happen. Faith is a relational reality. It's not a manipulative mechanism to get God to do what we want him to do. Faith is not arm wrestling with God that if I've got enough faith, I will get God to perform for me. Because then that borders on presumption. And often sometimes people use faith. Charismatic celebrities sometimes use faith. Not as genuine reliance on God when God initiates things, but presuming on God and initiating when God's not initiating and trying to engineer or manipulate something into being. Now, we need to know the difference between true faith versus presumption. Um, So maybe enough said on that. Um, Perhaps, Dennis, one more comment. In terms of the recipient of healing, you know, one of Jesus' common phrases in the Gospels is, your faith has made you whole, or the word is sozo, your faith has saved you. And and sozo is also used for healing. Your faith has healed you, has saved you. And I think Jesus is not saying, because you've got great faith, you've had a great miracle. I think what he is saying is, because you responded to my ministry and you received, God has done something for you. And we know subjectively it doesn't always happen. Even when we exercise faith and we try to pump up faith and we try to really have great faith then sometimes we're still not healed uh, at least symptomatically things don't change and that's then of course the challenge why doesn't that happen is it because of my lack of faith or there's some blockage or whatever and that we can talk about in a in the context of the theology of the kingdom i don't know if you want me to go there or you have got something else that you want to ask Right. So when healing doesn't happen and Jesus does, I mean, as much as we want it, you mention it and we often talk about it. You don't want to beat people up with the notion like, well, you just weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith. On the other hand, Jesus seems to offer that critique at times. You have little faith. He, um, He wants people to believe more. So how much is that an issue and how do we increase faith, if that's even the right way to think about it. Yeah. So there's a difference between unbelief, where people knew Jesus, but just refused to believe in his miracles because he was too familiar to them. Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And in Nazareth, he he couldn't do many mighty miracles because of their unbelief, their refusal to believe. So there's unbelief, then there's doubt which is not necessarily unbelief. Doubt is simply, I don't know, and i got questions. Then there is faith, and then there is growing faith, and then there is a gift of faith. And on that spectrum, I think 
um, we need to um, not be, um, you know, cruel or harsh in our treatment of people. Um, if people are not healed, we need to work with them and encourage them to trust God and persevere because faith is not just also an, a means to an instant answer. Faith is also a means to persevering, persistence, like Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. But the the Greek grammar is the ongoing present tense and strictly like the Amplified Bible translates it correctly. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking and you'll find. And there is this element of perseverance, the perseverance of faith, like Hebrews 11, all those examples of faith. A lot of them had instant miracles when they prayed, but many others didn't have instant miracles. They persevered, and some others never had any miracles and actually were were martyred and killed and sawn in half, and they lived in caves, and they went around naked. <laughs> but they're all heroes of faith. So we need to help people um, that to understand what faith is, how to exercise faith, and keep pers- persevering and, and trusting God. And perhaps a last comment here, Dennis, that might help. In the theology of the kingdom, fundamental to understanding Jesus' teachings about the kingdom is that he taught that the kingdom was present and active in principle and power, but also equally he taught the kingdom will come one day in fullness and finality. Hmm. And theologians, biblical theologians, call it the already and the not yet of the kingdom. And Jesus operated in the presence and power of the kingdom, but not fully in finality as if it were fully here, or else all dead people would rise. And and you have in the New Testament, even in the healing ministry of Jesus, side by side, this thing of the already and the not yet. And some people are simply not healed because in some mystical sense that we will understand one day, the kingdom didn't break through and was not present and active there and then. So if I think of an example of Jesus, he went into the area of the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, and he went up to one man who had been there for 38 years, and all the sick people were lying around there waiting for the angel to stir the waters. But he healed only the one guy, and then he left all the rest in their sickness. Why didn't Jesus, after healing the one guy, said, pick up your, you know, your bed and walk? You, you, you don't have to wait for the angel to stir the waters. <laughs> uh, why didn't he then heal everyone else? Other times, he healed everyone. There are texts where it says he laid hands on them and he healed them all. Uh, the, the guy that was blind in the village, Jesus spoke to the eyes and he said, do you see? And the guy looked and he said, I see people like trees walking around. Then it says Jesus took him outside the village, and that would have taken five, ten minutes, fifteen minutes of walking. And then he spoke to him a second time and said, be open. And he said, now do you see? And then he looked and he said, okay, I, I, I see clearly. There is evidence in the Gospels that some miracles were protracted, took time, some were instant, some happened, and some did not happen. And these nuances we need to be aware of is that the kingdom has come, the kingdom has not yet come, and sometimes that helps us to understand, I don't take it personally that I'm not healed, but it's a warfare, it's a battle. It's happened, it is happening, and it will happen.
It might happen before I die, but it'll happen through death in the resurrection of my body. It'll certainly happen. Either way, we win because the kingdom has come. <laughs> good, good. All right, so let's get more specific and practical. How do we go about healing? What does the Bible say? And if you could talk about the Vineyard Five-Step Model. And also, uh, do we command healing or do we pray for healing? How does that work? So in the Vineyard over the years from John Wimber, uh, and again, just on a personal note, I had the absolute privilege and gift from God to work with with Wimber for eight months in 82. And I worked on these healing booklets. We developed healing one, healing two, healing three, healing four. So I did a lot of work on the the groundwork that became MC 510 that John Wimber taught at Fuller Seminary, Signs and Wonders and Church Growth. And the book, Doing Spirituality, actually is a distillation and expansion of all of those materials. So it's very practical in terms of how do we actually do it. And we talk about the contact with the person and finding out what the issue is. And as we listen to them, we go through an initial diagnosis in our mind of possibly what is wrong here and possibly maybe through discernment of the spirit, what is behind it. But then we start talking about different dimensions of healing. Is this spiritually, spiritual healing? Is it physical healing? Is it being a problem, physical symptoms because of relational brokenness or psycho-emotional hurt? Or is it even demonic? So you're doing a kind of initial discernment. Then you engage in inviting the Holy Spirit and you just say, hold your hands out. Be open to God in a vulnerable posture. Just receive. And you lay hands on them and you bless them with the Holy Spirit. And you ask God to come and you touch them. But then you start listening to the Lord and you take what they've given you. And when you feel prompted, you speak like Jesus did. You know, Jesus, when he sent out the 12 and the 72, he said, go and heal the sick, drive out demons, cleanse the lepers, um, raise the dead, because freely you've received, freely give. He didn't say pray for the sick, pray for the demons to leave. He said, heal the sick, drive out demons. And the way Jesus did healing ministry, he addressed the issues and he rebuked them. And so we speak, we say, Headaches in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. And we trust the Holy Spirit to back up the word of authority and to actually enact healing and that the person then is free from headaches. And it's this relationship of authority and power. And obviously, as in the book of Psalms, I think, Dennis, what I, when I teach this and do healing conferences, when I teach this, I refer to the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, David speaks to God, and then he speaks to his own soul in the next breath. Then he speaks to Israel and rebukes them or whatever, and he even speaks to his enemies. And he says, Lord, I wish you would just kick them in the teeth away from me, my enemies. So when we do, when we're ministering healing, it's not as if you, you don't pray and ask God for healing. You do. You say, Lord, come. Lord, touch this person. Pour out your spirit upon them. And Lord, heal this person. But then when you're prompted, you also speak to the issue. You speak to the demons. You rebuke them. You address them. And then you ask for feedback from the person. 
how are you feeling? What's happening? Is anything subjectively changing in you? Are you aware of, of anything? And then we re-engage in ministry. So healing ministry is not just like a, a 20 second, be healed. Now, are you okay? <laughs> but we take time and minister the healing presence of Jesus, exercising words of knowledge, gifts, pictures God gives us that open up and unlock the person's heart where they realize you're saying things that you didn't know because they didn't tell you. And that's suddenly they realize, wow, this is interesting. He's saying this. How does he, how does he know this about me? And it quickens their faith to believe God's doing something here. And as it quickens their faith, they're reaching out for healing. And then often stuff happens. And at the appropriate time, often interaction and feedback, you close the, the time of ministry done, and then you debrief with them what has changed, to what degree it has changed, and perhaps you need to go for more counseling or come back again. We'll pray more for you, and maybe we just engage in a period of prayer for you, or maybe you're instantly healed and you're free, you know, and then go gossip the gospel. <laughs> so it's a process, and we, and we talk about those five steps. Okay, and do you like to use the pain scale? Tell me between one and ten. Is it a five now? Then you pray for him a couple times, and is it, you know, find out where it's at? Do you use that? So personally, Dennis, to be honest, I don't like it. I'm because deeply, I I am deeply uncomfortable with it, because for me, um, it's probably not what we do; it's how we do it that's important. You know. What we do is, how are you feeling? Is there any change? Move your limb. Exercise your hand if it is all stiff with arthritis. Exercise your hand. Let's see. But applying a pain scale from 1 to 10 can be manipulative and create pressure on the recipient to have to put it higher than it is. Hmm. Um, I think we need to be ultra-sensitive to the given exchange we have with people in ministry to honor their dignity and to not in any way be manipulative or hype up or use people as objects of ministry to make us look good or to achieve another healing that we can tell another great story. For me, personally, Dennis, I live in deep tension with a lot of charismatic excess in healing ministry, and I repent Fairly often when I hear of stuff and see stuff and I just feel deeply disquieted in me and I say, oh, God, help. Oh, God, forgive. I, I don't use the, the healing skill, but I do say, how are you feeling? Are you feeling any better? Has anything changed? Can you right. move? Them? Okay, um, so use words to describe, but not to actually quantify, not numbers to quantify. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, so the whole issue then of authority, I mean, is related. The authority that we have as disciples is connected to that. Do we just ask God, is this your will? If this is your will, heal. Or we actually command the, you know, the pain or the headache to go. So what does that tell us about our authority as children of God? So we work on the assumption in kingdom theology that ultimately all sickness is because of the brokenness of humanity and Adam and Eve's sin. And it is not the will of God for people to be sick 
and neither is it the will of God for people to physically die because God didn't intend death when he created um, all things. Death is a, is a foreign intrusion into God's pristine creation because of human sin. And sickness is a, is, is a result of sin and a foretaste of death. That is the assumption which we operate on, that it's God's will to heal people, it is God's will to raise physical bodies to eternal life. And therefore, we use that by saying, if God tells me I mustn't pray for you, or if God tells me that you're not going to be healed, which would be the extremely rare situation for, for some reasons, I work on the assumption that God wants to heal people. God has compassion and mercy and doesn't want people to suffer um, ongoingly. And therefore, we use the name of Jesus, operate trusting his authority by speaking his word and believing that the Holy Spirit's power is present to enact the word. So I always teach this through creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth was without form and void. There was chaos and darkness, but the Holy Spirit was hovering over the chaos then God spoke and said, let there be light, and the Holy Spirit enacted light. So as I look at a congregation, I look out and I see the, the dysfunctionality and disorder of human brokenness. But I see the Holy Spirit hovering over the congregation. And as I see the Holy Spirit touching that person or doing that, or the Holy Spirit shows me something, then I speak it out and I say, that person over there, I believe God's touching you. And you've had real deep past pain from a young child that God wants to heal. As I say that the Holy Spirit operates on the word, the let there be light is the spoken word of authority, and the hovering spirit is the power that makes it happen. And so we just have to go by faith as partners with God, using his authority speaking his word, addressing issues, trusting the power of the Holy Spirit to enact the word. Sometimes the words just dribble down our cheeks and nothing much happens and we don't see any change with the person in front of us. And you say, how are you feeling? Well, I'm not feeling much. I'm not. In fact, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm feeling nothing. Is anything changed? No, I don't think anything's changed. And then we say, okay, but it was good just to pray for you and just know God loves you. Can we pray for you next week again? And you just be honest, open, vulnerable, with no spinning of stories, but you don't presume to use authority by raising your voice. In Pentecostalism, I had an assumption of the Holy Spirit that the higher my voice is raised, the greater my authority. But it's actually hype and manipulation. It's not a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot one can say about it, but Perhaps enough said at this point, Dennis. <laughs> All right, so you touched on this already, but when you are praying for healing, you're not just saying the words. So what goes on in the minds and the spirit of the healer? Um, so can you say more about words of knowledge and images that might come or even sympathetic pains? Yes, absolutely. So um, w once again, uh, I have a whole chapter on this, chapter 13, on about sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and working with the, with the 
the voice, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit by learning how the Holy Spirit works in me and through me to the people around me. And so we talk about different ways of hearing God. In when I'm praying for a person, sometimes just I just have a thought, and I've I've become aware now that when I have certain thoughts, they're not my thoughts. I haven't made them up, and they just come to me out of the blue. I believe they're God's thoughts, and when I articulate them, often I see stuff happening in front of me. Sometimes I have a picture in my mind. God suddenly just gives me a picture, and when I articulate and explain the picture, the person either starts crying or something happens. Sometimes I have sensations in my body which indicate what God is doing in that person's body. So other times I have emotions. Um, compassion was one of the strongest emotions that was more than an emotion that operated in Jesus. He felt how God felt his father about people and he felt so deeply for them that he that he engaged to relieve them of their pain so feeling feelings god feels grief god feels sadness god feels happiness god feels all the range of human emotions that people feel and god gives us his feelings when we're ministering to people to indicate how he feels about them and when you say that to a person often they just start crying or when you weep with someone who's got cancer. Sometimes healing just starts flowing into them. Then also, <clears throat> there are smells. Um, they train dogs today to diagnose cancer by the smell of cancer. Certain sicknesses have certain smells. Demons have smells. Even death. I've smelled death. And I, I had a distinct, a very clear experience of a distinct odor of death that came to me. Um, so, you know, all our five senses biblically can be um, spiritually enlightened and used by God. Taste of the Lord and see that he is good. Smell the fragrance of the Lord. Hear the Lord's voice. Um, all of these things. So if we become aware, God can indicate to us, I've had the fragrance of lavender when looking at certain people. Um, and they mean certain things. God's indicating and communicating certain things. So that's, a, that's just an example of a range of words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophetic revelations, pictures, discerning of spirits, just a hunch deep inside you, a sense of an impression, sometimes a deep disturbance, something moves in your spirit and you just know. Um, so there are multiple ways subjectively that you start becoming aware through intimacy with the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit communicates in you, through you, to the person that you are ministering to. And then often you see stuff happening. I hope and that And then helps. after a while, you have the same experience, the same sense, multiple times, and you start to see what this might indicate from your own experience you find out what Absolutely. these things mean. So, well, let's, um, let's get yep. to the best part then. Can you tell us some stories um, from your own personal experience that were uh, most meaningful or most amazing to you? <laughs> well, um, um, there, there are, are many stories, but let me tell you a story of um, some years back when I was ministering in a youth camp. 
and um, I, uh, um, a, a young girl, probably 15, 16 year old, began to cry. And we were doing ministry time, and she was just she started to cry very uh, uh, loudly. And um, some of the young people gathered around her and started to raise their voices, and one or two of them began to, like, rebuke the devil. <laughs> and as I looked over across there on the side to see, just to see what was happening at this commotion going on, and the voices were being raised where this, this um, teenage girl was crying, as I looked, I suddenly saw a picture um, in, in my mind. It was like not not in my mind, almost imposed on that little group out here of a dark room with a door. And then I knew immediately in my heart that that is not a demon. It's not a demonization that she probably had been locked in a dark room. So I quickly moved over, asked the young people to back off. And I actually sat down next to her and she was whimpering and crying. And I said to her, when you were younger, were you ever locked in a dark room? And then she began to cry and weep. And then what happened is I had more words, uh, thoughts coming from God where I felt she was in a dark room where there was molestation taking place and that she had been groped. And when I said, were you abused? Then she just wept and wept and wept. And then the story came out that she had been held in a room where she had been sexually abused. And then we went through an exercise of healing of past hurts where we invited Jesus into the dark room and asked her to try to picture Jesus as the light, as light coming into the dark room. And we went through it very tearfully. It took quite a while. But um, that's just an example of real, in my mind, real profound deep inner healing that took place through first the picture that I saw when I said, Lord, what's going on there? And then through other words of knowledge that came into my mind, which I didn't say to her, this happened to you, that happened to you. I said, did that happen to you? Were you locked in a room? I didn't right. presume to pronounce. I used what God was showing me to ask questions. But as she gave answers, I realized it's true. It's true. And I got more and more specific and basically, it was like spiritual surgery under the anesthetic of the Holy Spirit, cutting down to the root pain. And um, so that's just one example. <laughs> okay, can you give us another one? <laughs> okay, so I, I, um, I always uh, remember this one as a young preacher. While I was preaching, I had um, a, a pain in my right knee while I was actually preaching. And the pain kind of increased. You know, when you're preaching, you're aware of at another level. The pain increased in my knee to the point where I was bending my leg while preaching to, to relieve the pain. And then it dawned on me, the thought came to me, it's not your pain, it's someone listening to you who's got pain. <laughs> so I stopped and I said, there's someone here who's got pain in your right knee because I think I'm feeling it vicariously and the Lord's indicating that God wants to heal you and who is that and no one responded and then I just said well in the name of Jesus I speak healing to you and I bless you and if God if you have this problem may you be healed 
but it would be lovely if you indicate who you are, that we can actually lay hands on you. And no one, everyone kept quiet. So then I engaged in preaching, and my preaching went downhill because I thought, oh, I've blown it. What I've made a big fool of myself. What happened is immediately after the service, an elderly woman came to me, and she said, it was me. And what happened is, as you stopped your sermon, this was her experience. She said, as you stopped preaching, I wondered, what is he, what's, why is he stopping preaching? And then as the words came out your mouth, there's someone here with a pain in the right knee. She said she felt something come down past her head here into her shoulder and go through her body like gentle electricity. And then when I said, who is this person? She said, I felt I was under a power and I couldn't speak. I was trying to say, it's me. It's me. <laughs> she couldn't indicate that it was her. She just kept under this power happening through her. And then by the time I'd finished preaching, it had lifted off and she felt completely free. Then she told me that in the week prior to that, she had a thrombosis in her cough that came up, lodged in her knee. She had gone to the doctor on the Friday and the doctor gave her blood thinning tablets and said, stay home on the weekend because this is dangerous. If it dislodges and goes up, it can affect your know, brain or your lungs. So just lie low for the weekend. But she phoned her friend and said, I want to go to church. And her friend took her to church. So she disobeyed the doctor's orders and came to church. And God healed her. So I said, well, do us a favor. Go back to the doctor on Monday. Be examined and see. And she did. She went back and there was no evidence of a thrombosis. So that's another example uh, story. Wow. Amazing. Okay. You've also touched on this already, the abuses within the Pentecostal movement. So uh, when can you give some general guidelines or like when do we know that things are being taken too far and uh, what can we do to avoid that? Well, um, let me first say, Dennis, that that uh, I honor what God has done through the Pentecostal movement because of the sheer boldness of going out and praying for the sick and driving out demons and the greatest church growth in the previous century and continues into this century is in and through the Pentecostal and spirit-empowered church planting movements. Um, and I would include Vineyard in that. We don't identify ourselves Pentecostal. We say we evangelical, empowered evangelicals with a charismatic Pentecostal praxis of the power of the Spirit. But I just want to honor them and say that God has used them profoundly and greatly. And if they err, they err on the side of just, of just going for it <laughs> and making mistakes and hopefully tidying up afterwards. But in terms of an evaluation and a, and a critique, I would say that um, from my own experience as an Assemblies of God pastor and my sensitivity now to charis what I would call charismatic excess <laughs> or Pentecostal excess is elements of manipulation in healing ministry. When you get people to do stuff that um, they're generally, whatever, they're not comfortable with. So manipulation and hype when, when the atmosphere is hyped up, either through the organ playing in the background or auto-suggestion often comes into play, raised voice, believing it's the power, the authority of the Holy Spirit, and, and then also 
putting people on the platform up front as as um um you know models of healing ministry it all happens on the platform by the man of god up front where everyone's watching and then they clap that places a pressure on the recipient to cooperate and say i'm healed or whatever respond to the healing so God can work through anything, and God uses even that to heal people dramatically, like with Catherine Kuhlman and Oral Roberts and William Branham and other revivalists. But equally so, um, there is mixed seed. Mixed stuff happens. So for me, the Holy Spirit inspires us, but it comes in and through my stuff, and hopefully on a good day, it's 80% Holy Spirit and 20% Alexander Fenter. But equally also, if I don't work with my self-awareness, I can intrude, and it can be 20% Holy Spirit and 80% of my personality, my ego needs, my need to brand and grow my ministry and to have success and to make something happen and to hype the atmosphere up and to, you know, so the, we need to be aware of that kind of stuff. And when people um, don't apparently manifest healing to be gentle and gracious and not cruel and quick to give them answers, um, like in, you know, it's your lack of faith or there's some problem in your life, um, you have unresolved sin and you need to repent, etc. We need to be very sensitive and careful because I've seen that in, in, in these circles um, that has been painful for people. So maybe... Once again, enough said. That would be a summary of some of the stuff that I would be, you know, any man of God stuff, any celebrity atmosphere or environment, any stuff that draws attention to the platform and the person on the platform where the person does the magics and the people sit and watch. Mm. I don't go anywhere near anymore. I shy. I, I go away from that. And God can use them. I know God can use a donkey to speak. God can do anything. God's God. He doesn't need my permission or anyone's permission. But my experience over the years is that I would just say that I'm, not, that I'm uncomfortable with and I can maybe tolerate. That I just don't agree with and I withdraw from the environment and I won't go there. And that is okay, but that I practice because that I believe in and that's the way I do it. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, I, I always wonder. Um, so obviously, you know, this has something to do with balancing or the interaction between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And we're like, well, I want my pastor to manifest the fruit of the Spirit because, you know, um, he's an example. So my wife and I, are, our families, our kids are everything. But when I go to the, the healer evangelist, we want to see the power of the Spirit, and maybe he's not the most moral person, but can he heal my son so that the gifts become more important? I'm not looking for somebody who's virtuous. I'm looking for somebody who's powerful. So I wonder if, um, just um, statistically, if the people that are so bent to go after the gifts of the Spirit, do they see more healing than the people like the vineyard where they're more balanced and more concerned about the fruit of the Spirit? Um, statistically, 
I would not be able to answer that question, and I, I actually don't know, but I hear the point that you are making. And um, I would say that if statistically people who just go for the gifts of the Spirit and emphasize the power and the charisma of, of the Spirit and just practice it, if that's higher, it would be understandable in a certain way because God honors faith and God responds to faith and works through faith. Um, and God doesn't seem to have some of the scruples that I have <laughs> because God uses people that I would not, I would not qu quickly or easily use. <laughs> well, we would shut them down. We would say, sorry, no, no fruit at all coming out of you. I'm trying to be very diplomatic here. <laughs> but, but the other side, what you've said, what we try to work with in Vineyard is um, holding things in tension. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has not yet come. And that is a tension that we must uphold and work within. The, the, the gifts and the, and the power of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in terms of character formation and sensitivity, love and compassion, we've got to hold it in balance and work in tension. If charisma overpowers character, we bring shame to the gospel. And if character is just the only thing that we emphasize and we don't embrace charisma, then we actually do have a powerlessness about our Christianity. So we actually need both and hold them in, in balance. But if anything, we need to be a fruit tree full of fruit that has Christmas presents on of the gifts of the Spirit that can heal people, as opposed to being a Christmas tree where we cut and paste fruit on to make it look balanced. <laughs> does, it, right. does it carry well, the illustration? Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that. Okay, so finally, if you could give just a few words to the church as a whole in terms of um, healing. Well, I would say if I had um, the privilege and the honor under God of speaking a word to the church of Jesus Christ as, as is happening, I would just say God has called us and commissioned us through his son, Jesus of Nazareth, by the power of his Holy Spirit to go and do what Jesus did the way he did it, to go and teach what Jesus taught the way he taught it, and to be Jesus to our world. And that includes exercising the healing ministry of the kingdom. And I would just say, we need to err on the side of taking risk, walking on water. Let's get out of our boats. Let's enter the storm of life and the pain of the world, because Jesus is in the midst of the storm in fact, it's under his feet, and he calls us to come and walk on water with him, to take big risk, risk, trust him. And even if we fail and we sink, he's there to pick us up and to help us and to take us further. We learn more by trying and taking risk and, and failing than by working it all out beforehand and being very careful and boundaried. I would say, let's go for it in the name of Jesus, because it's freely we have received. Freely give in Jesus' name. Thank you.
All right. Amen. Well, I'm Dennis Messler, and we've been with Alexander Venter, pastor and author. Uh, He's the author of Doing Healing, How to Minister God's Kingdom in the Power of the Spirit. Follow the link below to order the book. It's a great book. I read it straight through. So, um, Alexander, thanks so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you to all your guests. And God bless you. All right. Peace to everyone. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. We've got a lot more podcasts, so please check them out.